There's something comforting about seeing a teen's notepad with actual notes inside of it. Of course, the occasional diagram has its place too. But the written word reassures us that they're working. Simply, the more notes, the harder they must be working. After all, that's how we did it in my day. However, there are any number of ways of presenting information, as we'll all experience companies that have been trying to persuade us that their products are more effective than another, right the way through to Professor Chris Whitty and his COVID updates. So is the writing out of notes in long form always the most effective way of learning and revising? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of the Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be quite broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. Now, these are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at organising ideas and presenting information. Oliver is a former head teacher of a special school and currently the go-to educational book designer and illustrator, well, certainly according to my own collection. He has authored, co-authored and contributed to several books on teaching and learning strategies, including the forthcoming Organising Ideas, Thinking by Hand, Extending the Mind, which he has written alongside David Goodwin. He also maintains his website, ollicab.com, which is packed with resources and ideas for teachers and, I'd suggest, parents and students too. Oliver, thank you so much for joining me today. For most of our students, making notes consists of listening to what the teacher said or reading a book or perhaps watching a YouTube video and rewriting what they hope will be the salient important points. Revision, then, for many, is a task of reading and rereading these notes in the hope that they'll sink in, sometimes for an online test or flashcards. In the majority of cases, the written form is structured as bullet points or short-form paragraphs. Oliver, why do students tend to default to written long-form notes and index cards? Because it's easy and comforting. So if ever a teacher or a guardian or mentor or parent looks over their shoulder, they think, oh, good, they're doing a good job. They're revising, they're working hard. And from your own experience, you feel satisfied. It's the student equivalent of people who work in offices where we mistake busyness for productivity. We've all prevaricate, procrastinate. We do lots of other things so we don't exert any effort. We really hate making an effort. In fact, philosopher Bertrand Russell said, the one thing people will not do, they'll rather die than that, which is think, because it just takes so much effort. If I want to be comfortable and please my parents and give myself the delusion that I'm working, studying well, I'll just highlight and copy. Yet the reality is so different. See, up until recently, up until we got acquainted with cognitive science, testing yourself or someone testing you the purpose was never being questioned it tells the teacher how much the student knows and as we became a bit more enlightened particularly in the context of studying it tells the student how much the student knows and the one thing the student really doesn't want to know is how much they don't know they just don't want to know it you know it's the rare human being who will face up to reality So rather than that, we'll bury our head in the sand and just take notes and wear out a a ton of highlighters. Just recently, I've just been reading that testing yourself on one section of a piece of content is more effective than rereading the whole thing several times. So there's an element there of sort of the default position. We've always made notes, so that's what we encourage our children to and our parents would have done if they were encouraging at the same time. But also really interesting as well to hear that there's something in 
that almost as a self-protection. If you're not pushing yourself to find out what it is that you don't know, actually you, you get this illusion of learning, which we actually heard from last week with Nimesh Ladd. So I guess why is it that we're not trying to stretch ourselves more in the way that we encourage the students to approach other ways of summarising and sort of condensing information? Well, I wanted to kind of make sure I picked up when you said about taking notes. We need to make a difference between taking notes and making notes. I know it's kind of a bit of a nuanced difference, but when we use the word notes, we need to be clear whether we're copying or whether we're not just paraphrasing but making a precy. Now, I'm a 1960s grammar school boy where we were given cognitive steroids in the form of daily precy exercises, and there's nothing like it. There's nothing like precy because it's very, very hard, and it's near impossible to precy something if you haven't understood the whole thing. You have to understand the whole thing, and then you have to work out which are the important component parts that hang everything together. So which is mere or mere illustration, exemplification, which are the key constructs and how do they relate to each other? And how can you state it precisely? So several academics, famous academics in the past have said, if you can't explain, it's very ageist and sexist, if you can't explain it to your granny, then you don't know it. You don't know it well enough. You can't explain it. You shouldn't be in the public sector yet go away and practice. So it's very effortful. And seemingly unrelated, a comment that George Bernard Shaw made at the beginning of a letter he sent to a friend. He sent a friend a very long letter. And at the beginning, he apologised for it. He said, sorry, my dear friend, that I've sent you this long letter. I simply didn't have time to write a short one. And we haven't really developed the art of note taking because I, I don't know that we do daily pracy in English. Mm. I think something I was told when I actually left school and university and then went to have a job, that they told me to start reports or releases or anything that needed to go around with what a Sun journalist might write about it. So I guess it is that Prese idea of really condense all of the key points into one who, what, where, when, why, before getting in. So if you only read one paragraph, that you'll sort of get the gist. Is that, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yes, it is. And I think technically they call that a topic sentence. In the beginning of a paragraph, you would have a topic sentence. But it's interesting, you've touched on something which has fascinated me because I've been fascinated by journalism and the skill of their writing. And I've got a number of technical books and I've come across the term, the stand first. It's that sentence that sits between the title and the article. And they've always known it, but now that so much text is on the internet and we can track eyes, we now know it's reinforcing intuition. It's the single most important thing on the screen or the page because it invites you to read it. And what a stand first is defined as is a pithy pitch. A pithy pitch. Now, of course, students don't need to know that, but in order to write a pithy pitch, you have to be ultra effective in your praising. You also need to do it in such a way that it attracts the attention of somebody. But in order to attract the attention of a reader, you yourself need to not only do a praise on it, but understand its value in terms of interest. In other words, around what principle or fact does it revolve? So, yes, I agree with you entirely. Now, whether we can get students at this stage to write a stand-first pithy pitch would be wonderful. But an exemplification of what's missing. I'm not going to say what's wrong. I'm going to say what's missing. So as far as I can tell, what I hear in schools as a really advanced notion of note-taking is the Cornell note system, which is really basically three sorts of boxes in different places where they tell you different sorts of things to write. But of course, if I don't know how to take notes, then I'm just presented with three empty boxes. So how do I know what's important? How do I the only place I've seen it, I'm not going to search for this, in my library by the side, Robert Marzano is an American researcher where he has got a paragraph that's quite dense, and he shows you the techniques he's got, looking for substitutions, synthesizing, cutting out, you know, three or four specific things, and by showing you grouping words together and giving one word which summarizes all those, cutting things out, he step-by-step step shows you what a summary looks like. 
So that's important. At the same time, again, it was only yesterday I was rereading some notes from Tom Sherrington, where he said students creating their own flashcards is very useful because it involves all the things we just talked about. But therein also lies another danger. Their summaries are inaccurate. And then they'll be then doing retrieval practice on inaccurate information. Actually, Kate Jones in a previous episode said something similar, where it was great to see the students sort of encouraged to do their own flashcards. But actually, if they've taken themselves off on a tangent and yes. started to sort of create flashcards around a topic of history, which of course is her subject, that wasn't essential or happened to come up in a, a side conversation in class, then actually they just don't know what it is that they don't... Well, it goes back to exactly how we started. They don't know what they need to know or what they don't know. Yes. In the book Organise Ideas, David Goodwin, my fellow author, and Kat Howard, who's quite a presence on Twitter and an English teacher, we looked at something called kernel sentences. And let me explain their purpose. On one side of a continuum, you have knowledge organisers. Very, very concise capturing of key information. And teachers have been doing that for a number of years now. And that is a way to remedy the possible problem that Kate Jones talks about where they're going off on a tangent, because tangents won't be included. So it's a constant reference point students or indeed parents can go back to and check. But, you know, that's just peripheral. So you have knowledge organisers which are so curt they don't have sentences. And on the other hand, right at the other end of the continuum, you have a schema. We've all been reintroduced to the word schema. That was probably one of the most important words in a teacher's lexicon in the 70s, 80s and 90s, and it disappeared and it's being reintroduced now. And it sounds very complicated. And what it is, is an organised network of everything you know that makes sense. And it's not much difference to... Going in, and I like to have a concrete examples. If you go into a garage with no shelves, no cupboards, no boxes, nothing, you have a pile of a thousand objects on your garage floor, they become almost useless. You can't find anything. So you give up looking. And that's the same if you just remember things and you don't understand their significance. Once you have trays and boxes and bottles and shelves and numbering you can find anything easily i could be looking at the screwdrivers and then i know my drills over here the raw plugs are over there so that's the same with knowledge so how do we go about building these equivalent of shelves and organizing frameworks well one of the ways to it is by doing a sentence and so kernel sentences are the shortest possible sentence. One example of which is the cat sat on the mat. Let me just call up, you won't be able to see what I'm doing, so it doesn't matter. I'm going to just call up some kernel sentences dealing with Macbeth. So in addition to the type of knowledge organiser you might have, Cat Howard has written these sentences. Macbeth kills Duncan. Lady Macbeth doubts Macbeth. Banquo is murdered. The witches manipulate Macbeth. Four sentences, and then by the side, she has a very simple concept map that has the word witches, an arrow with the word manipulate pointing to Macbeth. But then we also have other arrows with regard to Banquo doubting Macbeth, Macbeth the arrow murdering Banquo. So you have all those multiple relationships built on these simple cats sat on the mat, simple sentence. So we can do pracy at the same time, we can work with ultra pracy, these kernel sentences, and then we can construct a map, a concept map to showing you the relationships. All that entails the very things that as human beings, I'm not putting the blame at students or young people, human beings like to do, which is avoid thinking, because it's difficult. But unfortunately, at some stage, when we really need to tell the students the facts of life with regard to study, is that your learning is a product of the effort you put in. And by effort, we don't mean absentmindedly highlighting or rereading or copying. That's minimal effort. It's just on your own, generating the words yourself, the sentence. That's what does this mean? What am I trying to say? 
Because it also plays to some of the myths, doesn't it, that we believe in the same way that highlighting is effective, or as you said, the office idea that working long hours is the same as productive. The organized chaos is something that we'll hear quite a lot. Oh, why did you tidy everything up? I knew where everything was. And these are the kinds of lies effectively that we tell ourselves to give us the illusion and that comfort that you talked about earlier. I love the thinking then about the kernel sentences, this distillation of everything that you know into uber simple sentences the cat sat on the mat and then you talked about how you could translate that into these concept maps and even though we can't see it because this is obviously an audio podcast that i can picture in my mind exactly what you described there with which is arrow points to macbeth and manipulates and could then see how i could do the other steps there between lady macbeth and, and so on so i wonder how important is presentation of information and the different ways that we can set out because of course when we started talking about notes and I should have been clear I was thinking really about the longhand written stuff that we were talking about whereas of course taking making notes the distinction that you made can come in many different forms it doesn't have to be filling lines and lines and lines of a textbook so how important is it to explore these alternatives concept maps and mind maps and and so on Well, first of all, I don't want to discount at all the value of sentences. Their power resides in the fact of they're being created by the student themselves. It's not copying. You're creating the the sentences themselves. And if you understand and follow the urge to condense them down into as short a sentence as possible, then all the more effort required going back to George Bernard Shaw. So now it's also the case that I'm going to use the word graphic organisers, which is the term which has been, I mean, I'm guilty for having promoted that notion from the American use. In the book, Organise Ideas, I've termed them alternatively. I've called them word diagrams for the reason that there's been a plethora, again, I'm guilty for it, of teachers accessing something called the noun project and getting icons. And then the notion of dual coding has gone somewhat awry where some teachers have even used notes for students where there are only icons and there's no words, which becomes like a guessing game, which (laughs) is no value whatsoever. So words is where it's at. But words don't only have to appear glued together with syntax. They can also appear without syntax where their meaning is created by their visual placement. I mean, there's lots of complicated ways to explain it. Gestalt psychology tells us that when objects are close together, we know they belong together. We know that. We teach that with our children, you know, that we put all the crockery where the crockery, and then we put all the spoons where the spoons, and big spoons and the big and the small spoons. So we're forever organising physical objects. And we essentially, that's what diagrams are, word diagrams are. In terms of creating them, there's no way you can pretend. When you copy words text, your mind can be somewhere else. And there's a danger still of just writing, not only the one we mentioned earlier on of being inaccurate, but we can sometimes feel, this isn't an argument not about having a good vocabulary, but we can sometimes delude ourselves that using complex grammar and elaborate vocabulary means you've understood something. When you get rid of the complex grammar, you know, the parenthetical clause, you're trying to write like Gibbons, rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and using the most abstract, obtuse language. And you use simple language to explain. It's going back to explaining to something to somebody who doesn't understand it. Then you're faced with the reality. Actually, at the core, what's the relationship between A and B? Is it part of it? Is it an equal to it? Is it prior? Is it antecedent? Is it... You know, what is, is it causal or is it merely chronological sequence? But normally, unless students are taught and teachers consider the instruction, use a mind map, use coloured pencils as being tuition, which is nothing of the sort. I mean, essentially, there, are, without going into great detail, there are four sorts of diagrams or word diagrams, of which there are many sorts within these four types. The first one is chunking or defining, which looks at the whole and the part. Concept maps, mind maps, tree diagrams, target maps are all the same thing. They define something. They essentially answer, what is it? 
Of course, they also answer, what was it? What could it be? What will it be? Definition. One category. Another category is comparing, an intrinsic part of learning and defining something, comparing two or more objects, identifying similarities and differences, Venn diagrams, double sprays, matrices, many ways that you can compare things. And then we get to two seemingly similar but significantly different, particularly when it comes to sciences and history. We look at sequencing versus cause and effect. So understanding this difference means that we're beginning to unearth from children's thinking that false, naive child's logic that just because something happened beforehand, it causes what happens subsequently. When, you know, to identify causal links is far more subtle, and it may be a group of objects or a group of events that can be said to cause something else, but maybe not entirely. There may be, you know, there are catalysts and whatever. So the third and fourth categories are sequencing, which is predominantly chronological, but could be some other type of sequencing. And then there's cause and effect. When you understand there are these four types of thinking, and by the way, I spent nigh on 20 years going up and down the schools, including some private schools that had extremely well-qualified teachers in them. And I used to invite them to humiliate me and find any area of their subject which was outside of and couldn't be captured by any of these four or combinations of them. Never caught out once. So that's a really interesting thing for teachers particularly, the thing that they could capture their complexity and nuance of their subject by knowing that essentially, and some teachers hate this because they call it reductionism, their subject is nothing more than a combination, a unique combination of these four types of reasoning, putting ideas together in these formats. So it may help students to think, here, I really need to understand the chronology of it. So do some kind of a timeline or a flowchart. Or it may be I need to identify cause and effect. Well, an input-output, it sounds, you know, it's an engineering diagram. Here are all the inputs. Here's the pivotal event. And here are the range of outcomes. And if you know that's needed in to understand these particular aspects of history and you can't do it, no amount of writing will disguise the fact to the examiner. Fascinating. I think as someone who's dealt with information and communication as part of my career, actually that whole piece of just being able to distill, as the word diagrams themselves do, into the four areas. And as you say, I can't can't think of anything that would be different. We've been spending time doing this, so there's no reason to think there is anything different. just seems incredible that we still rely on longhand and writing, actually when that summation and also the the self-testing element could come from something so clear and so simple. But also just want to be clear that what we're not talking about here is a learning style. This isn't about people who are, and if you could see me, I would be doing inverted commas, visual learners. This is about being able to apply your distilled knowledge into something very concise and very straightforward. No learning styles at all. But I want to talk about some aspects of learning which previously hadn't been well understood or captured by psychologists that in that gap, in that vacuum, some plausible but inaccurate theories arose, which included learning styles. Earlier on, you talked about we as human beings make excuses for ourselves, and you talked about the organised chaos. I know where everything is. I want to return to that because there is an element of truth in it. So when you start with an empty desk and you gradually bring things on board, And then the eventual pile is a result of your working and your manipulating. And in a way, the notes, the books, the flashcards are a projection and a chronicle of your mind projected. And that link between the internal mind and the external objects comes through your body. So I'm now going to talk about this seemingly strange thing called embodied cognition, and I'm going to give you a very, very powerful revision practice. One that I invented over 20 years ago and felt awkward about because I'd never read any research validating it. The evidence in front of my eyes that thousands of teachers and students meant it was unbelievably effective. 
And lo and behold, these last couple of years, I've read some research from John Sweller and the other psychologists who've just cottoned onto it. So let me go into that briefly. Psychologists are beginning to realize that when we look at the mind, to think of the mind as only the brain is inaccurate. We know we take information from our bodies. So this is where the learning cells kinesthetic learner comes in, which is inaccurate. But we do use our bodies. So let me just, before I get complicated, let me just tell you the goodie first of all. So here was a technique I had. You've understood up to now the power of explaining something to somebody else based on your own summary. Really powerful. We know that doing that via a word diagram is powerful in its creation. It's powerful also as a speaking and listening framework, which helps you explain something rather than just reading out text. So it makes it live each time. And it also becomes a very useful focus for your naive listener, your neighbor, your granny, your brother, whichever. Now, so I want to picture both of you side by side with this word diagram that you've created. And the word diagram consists of key, key words. You're not going to just read the key words out. You're going to elaborate them into fully formed sentences in which you're able to explain the nuances of reasoning, chronology, and all those other four aspects. And while you're doing it, you're going to be doing something which seems rather strange, but is unbelievably powerful. And I can explain why now. I used to know it was, but now I know why. You're going to use the index finger of the hand that you write with. And you're going to put those unbelievably sophisticated bundle of nerves on the end of your fingertip. And you're going to place it directly, not via a pen, but with your flesh on the paper. And you're going to trace the line of your word diagram in coordination with your explanation. Okay, I'm in. So were we to have a diagram about Macbeth, I would say, Macbeth, this, Banquo. So I'll, by the end of my explanation, I would have traced the whole map in perfect coordination with my narrative. The listener, by the way, would have your word diagram, they would have your narrative, and they would have your finger directing them where to go. And by the way, there's lots of research to show that pointing at something helps people better understand. So you're, yeah. So you as the student, the explainer, will have created the diagram. You would have looked at the diagram and drawn it. You'd have drawn it physically. You'd have looked at it. You'd have explained it and you'd have traced it. And you may have been subject to some inquiring questions by your listener. That's technically known as elaborative interrogation. So I'm, I'm exploring how one activity can include multiple of the effective study strategies that cognitive psychologists have done. So I want to return to that about the single versus multiple. Now, your listener goes away if they want to. You hide your map. You take out a clean sheet of paper. You have your pen by your side, but you start off with your index finger in the middle of the piece of paper, and you say to yourself, metaphorically, switch on the record of my podcast, my explanatory podcast. Illuminate the map as it gradually starts to fade into focus. And importantly, now move your finger in coordination, in liaison with the narrative I can hear and with the map I can gradually see. Immediately, you'll pick up the pen and you'll redraw your map. And when I used to do this with teachers, and I gave them 45 minutes after coaching them how to do it, to draw a map of something of their own understanding. You know, I had an incredible A3 maps of the history of hip hop or cricket or any subject, British constitution, compact. And they did the whole explain to each other in the way I've just described. And when they redrew it, they drew it so comprehensively, so accurately, it blew their minds. It was like a photocopy. Only sometimes it was slightly different, slightly different. 
And those differences were improvements. Because when you can see your thoughts projected from inside your head, overtly, explicitly, objectively in front of you, you cannot tolerate something which is inaccurate or insufficiently precise. You'll amend it. You know that thing on a desk, you always kind of tidy up your pens. It's that phenomenon. And that can't happen by looking at your thoughts inside your head. We simply don't have the mental resources and capacity to do that. Absolutely love that idea. Is it any one of those things, the five steps you talked about in creating and drawing and then looking and living, explaining, tracing, elaborative recall, are any one of those more powerful or is it the combination of the five of those activities? And like most things, the combination is bigger than the individual ones. I've just been writing about it this morning. I think I'm the only person who said this, so I'm really excited to say it. A phenomenon has happened, and we haven't been aware of what it is. We've been hypnotised, we've been conditioned into something. So cognitive science is run by scientists. Obviously, hard scientists would say they're not really scientists like we are. They're kind of, you know, half social scientists, but notwithstanding that argument. Scientists measure things, and they really want to make sure they're measuring what they intend to measure and not something else. So they do that by getting rid of all the variables. So they get hold of their their undergraduates in a laboratory and they do a really tightly designed variation, variable excluded, highly, highly, highly focused activity. And they measure it and they replicate it, et cetera, et cetera. Then guess what they do? They report on it. They report on the singularity of focus. And teachers and leaders and trainers, all of us want to be evidence-based. So we read their reports. And without realising it, we're going singular focus, singular focus, single technique, single method. With that analytic approach, teachers don't do that when they teach. They're synthesizers. They cannot get rid of any of the variables in their classroom. <laughs> you know, they're all there. They're all present all the time. They're students. They're <laughs> merging and bubbling and being organic. The complete lie that we can continue the stream of thought and focus of a scientist and apply one technique is ludicrous. So we've, with my colleague Tom Sherrington, we've devised for teachers now the notion of a cluster And to introduce it, I had to remind teachers that, you know, if you learn boxing, you don't just learn the jab. You don't just learn the the hook. You you put them together into a combination. My daughters were dancers, and they used to come home with this wonderful word, amalgamation. And amalgamation is in tap. They put their steps together. And it's unthinkable that a boxer would only learn single single punches. It's unthinkable that a dancer would only learn single steps. And a tennis player wouldn't learn, learn serve, volley, smash for tactical reasons. And yet we haven't had that conversation in teaching. So the example I gave you is an example from, not from a teaching point of view, but from a student point of view. You wouldn't say, I'm going to do retrieval practice. I'm going to do, because in the exercise I've given you, that's another way of doing retrieval practice. So we've done peer explanation. We've done drawing, which I'll talk about the research for that. We've done tracing. We've done peer explanation. And if the other person participated, elaborative interrogation, altogether, and retrieval practice. So the explanation for tracing. There's two forms of learning. Most of humans' existence haven't had schools. That's very new, very artificial. So we have psychologists talk about biological primary learning. No one teaches to speak, no one teaches to smile, no one teaches to miss to interpret faces. All that's natural to do with survival. Then there's biological secondary learning, which is really weird. We go into a room with 29 others and a grown-up talks to us, and we have to remember and do exercises. It's new, it's difficult. By definition, everything in a school is difficult. Yeah, we just really need to grow up to that, face the fact. Now, 
what has happened is, and we know that our, our working memory is just limited and always will be. Now, what they've discovered is, in that exercise I've just taught you tracing, your biologically primary use of gesture in the form of tracing, there are other forms pointing, meant that you, your mind, so to speak, outsourced information gathering through your body. Not at the expense of your working memory, but in addition to working memory. So listen to this formula. Working memory is a single most determining factor, apart from effort, of your future success. It's your capacity for success. And any mental hack which could increase your working memory, by definition, significantly increases your chance of success. So this method increases your capacity of your working memory by adding on to working memory your what's called your embodied cognition. Well, you need to think of the mind as bigger than the brain. Our body is intelligent and we take in information, which goes back to your organized chaos. The person pretty much did know where everything was because of repeated use. We know what's around us. We know what's around us. It is in view and felt and within our, our reach. So when you think of your mind like that, all of a sudden your notes become a projection of your mind. So look at what you're writing and say, you know, am I thinking straight? You're not doing it for teacher. We're so used to doing things for teacher. This is for ourselves. You know, I often work in cafes and I, you know, my kind of semi-office is the Royal Festival Hall. And people come out and they've got laptops and they've got little black notebooks. Why do grown-ups use notebooks when they don't have a teacher over their shoulder ordering them to write stuff down? Because we can't keep things in our head. We cannot keep things in our head. Indeed, at the risk of sounding complicated, anthropologically, there's a guy who's really caught my attention called Merlin Donald in the 80s. He looked at the development of the human mind, and it said it all happened around two events when we started writing. But first writing was just, how many sheep do you owe me? <laughs> you know, it was just like that stuff. Then the Greeks came, and they didn't just write about sheep and how much you owe me. They put their ideas down. So an idea could now last longer than a conversation. Indeed, it can last longer than a lifetime. So you get this thing called iterative thinking, where you, later on, and others, much later on, or even at the same time, look at your words and say, that's fine, but what about this? And you can improve that, and that's not right. And so it develops like that. And he called it the external memory field. So here's what gave humans a complete breakthrough, a step change in their intellect. For the, for the being, nothing was transient. We could capture transient words. So in terms of a student, their desk is their mind. Now, all of a sudden, it completely changes what you think about revision. It's not me in my mind and this boring desk, boring arms, a boring textbook. That is you. Your inner story becomes your outer story, and your cognition is in front of your eyes. So now, instead of just having a thought, you can see your thought, and you can get another thought, and you can model it, and you can move things around. Does that come before? Does that come afterwards? It becomes an intellectual Lego set that you're constructing, you're building. In fact, psychologists call it constructivism. You're making meaning which is the other side to retrieval practice. Retrieval practice is brilliant for all the reasons we know. And at the same time, there is something which tops it, or rather, which is the context in which it lives, which is meaning. Human beings remember what is meaningful. And your job as a student, for which the activity of explaining to someone else is a great discipline, is you have to create meaning. And you don't create any meaning 
Your highlighted pen does not produce meaning. Your, your biro as you copy produces no meaning. Meaning is crafted, it's forged, it comes with mental cognitive sweat. You create it. And the thing is for students, you either create it or you don't. And if you don't, you have an easier time and you don't get the results. If you sweat, you create meaning and you'll get the results. There's no complaining, no excuses. You get what you put in. Fascinating. Touching on so many things. I am writing notes <laughs> as we speak. You'll be delighted to know some of them are in the form of more concept map than they are necessarily <laughs> sentences coming down. But so touched on so much. And I think one of the things that you just mentioned there is that level of energy really comes through when talking about transferring it and then getting these thoughts and ideas out of a head where they'll only last as long as you, obviously, down onto paper, actually isn't or shouldn't be laborious. It should be something that could be exciting because actually that's where the potential is. I think for many of our parents out there, this will seem like an alien concept because, of course, our students aren't necessarily engaged and excited about learning whatever school subjects it is that they've got. But would you say that actually the process of starting to do it, of starting to see it and starting to see the fruits of their labours can be something that they'll get enjoyment from? Yes, indeed. I see it as a puzzle. Human beings, having said that statement by Bertrand Russell, that people will do anything rather than think, at the same time, once they start, it's really engrossing. So it's a puzzle. So if you can construct it either for yourself for a puzzle or in terms of parents or guardians, ask them questions. It's called interrogative elaboration. So you would, I shall get those wrong, sometimes it's elaborative interrogation, that's the way around. You're asking <laughs> what and how questions. How does that happen? I said, what happens next? So how do my best feel about it? Just be involved, ask, ask naive questions. So even if you know the answer, ask naive questions. And we can all ask that. And feign interest if you're not interested. <laughs> feign interest. Make it interesting. We often think what happens is something either is or isn't interesting, and that stimulates interest in us. Humans have the capacity to fake it till you make it. I'm not interested in trains. But I'll tell you, half an hour after being with a train spotter, I'd say, oh, I see. So these are the regular bits. Ah, oh, and here's an exception. You know, everything is interesting once you start seeing some patterns and what comes next. Hmm. Presumably if you're open to the idea of being interested. Yes. Well, you tell the student it's either boring and you'll be ineffective or it's interesting, you generate some energy. <laughs> Fairly simple, brilliant choice. We don't need a detailed concept map for that argument. <laughs> Going back to and think about the elaborative interrogation or interrogative elaboration, whichever way around. It seems like a really interesting idea for parents. So one of the things that we would like to see with parents certainly is going back over that and helping with the retrieval. So as you described, asking so which is manipulates who. We can then use presumably that to help the students to elaborate further by just asking why. Why is that? Or I don't understand. How do you know that? So just because it's not in the concise nature of these diagrams doesn't mean that it's not important because presumably that's where when they're in the exam situation they're not going to be asked to draw a concept map they're going to need to apply these thoughts and ideas that they've retained in that exam context perfect yes one thing i didn't when you were listing all the skills involved in the activity i told you in the peer explanation we're getting that elaboration and supported by a parent in the example you showed. And that really is rehearsal for writing. It is rehearsal for writing. And then, so when they come to, if you really want to rehearse the whole exam process, after constructing the map, explaining it, redrawing it, put it away, and then go through the whole content in written format, which is an activity that's been researched quite a lot, which is the transition from text that you've read into a diagram that you've condensed and of course supported by explaining it to someone else you know and all those things i said but then you then write it out as a piece of text and then you have the original text mm. and then you have your text that you wrote and then you then do matching mm. which is interesting 
Yeah, absolutely. And so you can see, I guess, the different skills or processes you're going through <coughs> from the text. You're demonstrating your understanding by through presse into the word diagrams or other yeah. forms of something, and then using the peer-to-peer elaborations and, and tracing and these other techniques that you talked about shows that you've got the understanding because you were able to do that. That's the skill. And then your readiness for the test or for the exam is in actually being able to inflate that condensed into something that's fit for purpose. Perfect. Yeah. And it's a full cycle. You're going from linear to non-linear, from written to oral, back into written mm-hmm. linear text. And so you said before that as part of your tour through the country, talking to teachers and coaching them on various techniques and the word diagrams, that there was an open challenge. They could find something where this wouldn't apply. So my next question, I guess you've already answered, and it was really whether there are exceptions that they're more suited to than others. So immediately coming to mind when we're talking, we've used more text-heavy subjects. We've looked at history. We've looked at English. You can see, I guess, the the cause and effect, the fourth of your word diagram groupings used in science. So for maths and for languages, how could students look to apply the same kind of thinking? If, If they can't immediately get one in, should they be thinking, well, I'm better off just taking notes then? Those two subjects are indeed the ones that most word diagrams are less relevant. There's one which is particularly relevant for mathematics, but it's more in terms of what teacher would do. So I can't really talk about using... Hmm. I think it might be useful at some stage if there is a formula or if there is a particular process, you simply need to know it off by heart. Hmm. Then use retrieval practice for it and maybe experiment with the idea of tracing it through Hmm. or writing it or manipulating it or moving it. So you're using and explaining at the same time. Hmm. So listening to you talk there, looking at the formulas, my daughter is currently looking at geometry and circle theorem. I think she's got a a test coming up. And so actually you could see actually how, because you need to know that there are rules that can be applied, that actually that could translate to the kind of thing where it can be explained pictorially rather than necessarily just having to keep going and churning through. So you can build up this map in your mind of which theorem, which rule you might need to call on or which might apply. Yes, I mean, that triggered me recollecting an article by John Sweller in which his own research and the research by a guy called Hu, H-U, his PhD, he looked at worked examples as a mechanism teachers use, you know, where you show all the steps. And they had two groups. One of them used worked examples that are already very powerful and they were tested. The other group did worked examples and it was a geometry and they also traced the angles and they outperform those who only did work, worked example. So whenever there's an opportunity to embody the content in some way, to make a physical connection and speak about it and all the other things, then do so. Because you're getting free energy that which doesn't take away from your working memory resources. The risk of bouncing chaotically amongst the smorgasbord of interesting stuff (laughs) that you've talked about, because that does bring us back to the question of learning styles or the myth of learning styles, as we heard from a previous guest, Newton, Professor Philip Newton, that is this where this has come from, that bringing in the idea that scientists want to test and measure one thing, that actually by looking at the visual as well as the kinesthetic, as well as the audio and the written word, that actually the learning styles don't work as an individual preference, but collectively are incredibly powerful as a way of building up memory and recall and schema and and all of these kinds of ways in which the body and mind can learn. Yes, I mean, it's really nothing new. The Romans, you know, the the rhetoricians, the orators, used to use memory palaces, which was an internal spatial metaphor in which they had some bodily sense of moving. Because, you know, our first person present tense sensation, we can do a virtual reality ourselves in our imagination. Imagination has now been looked at as a significant study technique. Not so long ago, 100 years ago, Madame Montessori, with the early years teaching, talked about she had some almost sandpaper when the finger they used to trace the shape of the letters. So it's all been around for a long time. And people instinctively know that they use all their senses. But in a vacuum of 
a coherent theory which could be researched, they made stuff up in kind of the American way, brain-based, you know, as opposed to elbow-based. Yes, the danger is because it was stupidly promoted, zealously promoted, used for labelling children and therefore diminishing and limiting their possibilities and then thinking there was a direct correspondence between teaching in one style and learning with another, quite apart from the limiting aspects, it's not effective. Mm. So what determines which modality you use is determined by the nature of the content. Yeah, which is exactly what we heard from Philip Newton, teaching medicine and teaching anatomy is hands-on and visual. It's not the kind of thing that's going to work over a telephone. Going back to that idea that you just talked about, there, the senses and imagination, I just think absolutely enthralled by this idea of actually really total engagement in what you're doing. So we have this idea of the stereotypical student hunched over a desk, working away, or maybe passively sitting there and, and listening. But actually, there really does seem to be something so true in this total embodiment, as you've talked about before, embodied cognition, that actually the more engaged, the more their senses that they're using, it's quite easy to see then how actually that would become more interesting and promote a better learning. Yes, and seemingly perversely, I'm going to say, on some occasions, if that's contrasted with shorter moments in which we don't rely on the senses and we close our eyes and we imagine a process. So Fiorella and May, two cognitive scientists, have written a book about four or five years ago now called Learning as a Generative Activity, in which the eight strategies they studied and created meta-studies looking at other studies, imagining is one of them that are really effective. So in addition to all that we've said, you withdraw from the senses and you develop the capacity to concentrate and sustain the concentration into a series of, of imagined moves to do with a formula, to do with imagining a timeline, bringing it all to mind. That's not very effective if that's all you do because we wouldn't have the capacity to do that or the motivation or anything else. But once you've become productive in a way that we've described, you have more to work with. And storytelling, of course, was another one of the steps that they took. And I think actually having, if we look back on the conversation that we've just had, you illustrated so many of your points with, well, I guess, imagined situations in the same way that students might help to elaborate back to a parent or to a peer. So we had the, the garage that was all jumbled up as opposed to ordered, the boxing analogy and, and dancing as well. So these are all other ways in which distilled information can be relayed back, presumably, to help test and consolidate learning. Yes. I'd also say something else is that we sometimes think this black box inside our head is so mysterious because we can't see it. But actually, everything in the world that humans have been involved with is a representation of our thinking. If you just go into your kitchen, the way everything's organised... That's not natural. That's not the natural world. It's a projection of the human need to organise by type. Once you see that, you say, that's why I can't understand this text. I just need to organise it. <laughs> so all the physical objects in the world are a manifestation of humans' need to organise. And so... Within that, I guess there's a trial and error element that we should be encouraging students to go through in actually finding the different ways that work for them. It's not a one-size-fits-all that, as you said, flow diagrams or inputs and outputs are going to work, but they should find what they're most comfortable with as a way of helping them to distill their knowledge and then reuse later for their revision. Yes, but I think the word comfortable with is a dangerous word to use because having headphones on, having your phone there and highlighting is very comfortable. <laughs> so I'd be wary. They'll hook onto that word comfortable. With. I'd, I'd search for another word which you found to be effective, not, okay. as, a, not as a judgment because you've tested yourself. I should have corrected myself, especially having spoken to Nimish only last week about the attend part of Marge, of course. But yes, absolutely not comfortable, but what was effective and what they find works for them best in those contexts That's a good way. as a technique as opposed to an environment. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. 
And the other thing, I'm guessing that having accepted that actually there might be some areas that are more suited to word diagrams and this kind of distillation than others, that our students shouldn't labour the point, that they shouldn't be spending inordinate amounts of time trying to find a way in which they can shoehorn their content into this style of studying and and note-taking. No, indeed. I'm not even clear whether at this stage when they're studying, if they haven't come across it, they even ought to start because there's an opportunity cost. If they're doing it, they're learning a technique. They're not actually revising. So unless they have a parent or teacher who could teach them something in a simple format, and teachers and parents can sometimes, if they know a particular diagram, are over-enthusiastic and they want to teach them the whole caboodle, all its subtleties, they just want to get it down to its basics. And unless you're confident that that's happening, just continue with your strategy you've been using hitherto. And so when you say at this stage, what kind of point would you be referring to from a student's perspective? As we talk now, we're coming to the end of the academic year for year 11s and year 13s, who of course would have been taking exams but aren't. But looking ahead, we've got year 10s coming into their final year, year 12s for A-levels. Is there a time at which you'd say, actually at this point, just stick with what you're doing and another point at which it might be advantageous to try to explore other ways of doing this. I'm really not in a position to say. It certainly depends. depends how well the person does. All of a sudden, I remember some 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, my daughter was panicking. She's doing GCSEs. I had something to write. I could give her almost no time. She was doing biology. I said, put all the words down on bits of post-it notes, single words, and then write them out close to each other in bubbles and join them if you think they're joined up. Closer together, the more they are are further apart and put some kind of word on the joining line to tell me what you mean. Just that. And then so she was away, did that for an hour and say, right, as you explained to me, trace it. So it's possible without knowing a technique and it's all in all its finesse, Mm. you can do something like that where you're manipulating. And... Post-it notes are really useful. I use the smallest post-it note you can. I've got all the only a tiny post-it note with quite a thick biro, so you can't write many words, if not no more than one or two. And then as you manipulate them into different configurations, you're actually doing thinking. Mm. That's as close as you can ever get to thinking, seeing. It gives you more of an insight into thinking than looking at a scan of your brain or electrical impulses in that bit of grey jelly. That's really what thinking looks like metaphorically. You're arranging, you're organising. We've seen examples certainly with the post-it notes before and with the languages, actually. So writing down verbs and then you can group them in terms of irregular verbs or regular verbs or to do with the home, to do with outside and those kinds of things. And all of that helps to test the brain to look at the information in a slightly different way and present it in a slightly different way. Yes, well, it's in front of your eyes for a start. So it's in your external memory field. This anthropologist, by the way, who's also a cognitive scientist, he said the visuospatial sketch pad, which we talk about as part of working memory, what's on your desk in front of you is your visuospatial sketch pad. It's like you're able to project your working memory out onto your desk. So you have that aspect. And, of course, in what you were describing, it doesn't happen by thought, you're using your body, so you're connecting your brain with the pieces. Mm. And it's a projection of you. So you're doing physical thinking. And so in terms of advice to parents and students in the kinds of approaches that they could be using, it seems that this isn't something that should be entered into just for the sake of it, and that actually students should be, I suppose, paying attention, being mindful about the kinds of techniques and activities that they're undertaking. Yes, I mean, as you said that, I thought of an enormous danger is someone could be really distracted by creating a new form of diagram and you don't need any colour pencils or drawing, (laughs) you know. So they get the pencils out, they start drawing, and I've seen mind maps like that. It's just a distraction. There is a danger with the current trend of studygramming and the YouTubers who will go to great lengths to make inordinately beautiful pages of notes with calligraphy and uh, just outstanding pieces of art but actually not particularly useful it's a fad it's all about the process it's not about the product and so not being able to draw 
not having the neatest handwriting. All of these kinds of things shouldn't be a barrier to students if they think that it's not for them. We're just manipulating words in space. That's it. Simple, nothing more complicated. Organising them. And so any final top tips for students and parents as they embark on this new and exciting voyage of note-taking and press-saying that they might not have come across before? Well, in the sense that I've, I've kind of repeated it again, its purpose is that you can write about it and you're bound to be a better writer if you can speak about it. In fact, many people say, it's probably entirely true, you can't write about that which you can't speak. So the end purpose is to write. A way of getting to write is to speak about it. One of the ways to speak about it is to clarify what you're saying. If you want to clarify what you're saying, then praising it or a word diagram, which is a form of praising, is a really good way to test your understanding. So we've been talking about towards the end, but it's useful to start from the end and be really clear that's the purpose. You're not going to present a fancy mind map as a work of art. Like, so what? It's completely irrelevant. It's a non sequitur. Oliver, thank you so much for your time and all your insights. I thought that was just amazing. So much food for thought. And while there remains something comforting about seeing pages of notes, as Oliver has explained, this doesn't necessarily equate to learning. However, it might be the very necessary first step in what I now understand as a process rather than an art form. I remember distinctly looking at other people's notes and being quite envious when I was a student, if not a little embarrassed about my own. It's not that they weren't complete or fit for purpose, they just never looked as neat or aesthetically pleasing as some of my other friends, no matter how carefully I underlined the title. But actually, the first function of notes isn't to be visually appealing. As we heard from Oliver, taking information and relaying it in our own words is absolutely key. I thought it was really interesting to hear Oliver talk about the importance of summarising information. Creating a succinct presse is a fantastic way of boiling an idea down to its essence. You have to work hard and really understand what it is that you're distilling in this way. And it's interesting to think that keeping ideas simple like this might help our young people to organise and store them for better retrieval when needed. Plus, you can't fake an ability to presse in this way if you haven't truly understood this helps to combat that illusion of learning that we've heard so much about. I loved hearing Oliver talk about word diagrams. The ability to call on a number of different ways to represent the essence of a thing that we're learning about is so incredibly powerful. I think a lot of us are familiar with mind maps or spider diagrams, as some people might call them. And I must admit, they're sort of my go-to if I'm trying to get an idea out of my head and onto paper. And I've certainly encouraged my children to do the same as a simple alternative to writing longer form notes. But I've never really thought about how other approaches might work when trying to consolidate learning to express an idea. However, it makes perfect sense, of course, that there are plenty of other ways. Oliver talked about the four types of situation a diagram might be useful, and with a myriad of options underneath each heading. We heard about chunking, to show what a thing is, sequencing for progression or maybe a timeline, and cause and effect. Thinking about it, there would have been any number of instances in my professional life when a fuller appreciation and awareness of these kinds of word diagrams would have been particularly useful. I'm thinking about times when I had to present to people to get their buy-in, whether that was managers or, or potential clients. And that's why I think I'm a, such a firm believer that these approaches to creating and capturing thoughts through word diagrams, maybe, is an essential skill. As we start to think about revision for next year, I'm definitely going to be doing a bit more investigating in how I can support my daughter. And that research will definitely include Oliver's forthcoming book. If you keep an eye out on the website, we'll share some more information about what we find out. Another particularly eye-opening idea, if you'll forgive the pun, was Oliver's description of whole senses learning, and in particular his advocacy of training. To be clear, 
Again, this isn't advocating the debunked learning styles, but rather a perspective that when we take in sight, feeling, sound, etc., the overall learning effect is more powerful. Oliver talked about embodied cognition as the encapsulation of this idea. And you can see how, taken as part of the flow, it can help cement knowledge. We are, after all, multi-sensory, so it makes sense to me that we can help our working memory with these additional supports. So time would be well spent by generating descriptions to the diagrams that have been created as part of their revision. This could either be through practice papers or past questions, alternatively by us parents encouraging our young people to elaborate on their notes. A simple why or what does that mean could really help them to try to explore their understanding and helpfully we don't need to pretend to be subject matter experts either. Thank you for listening. I hope like me you found this episode truly fascinating. If you did would you take a moment to leave a five-star rating perhaps a review too it really does help us reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course Sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.